0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Calvary Chapel South Pittsburgh. My name is Brad Ebert. For those of you that don't know me, it has been my pleasure to serve here since 2013. I've said that every time, but it honestly has been a pleasure. Um, so we're going to finish the Book of Micah tonight, and uh, this is our third night. And I remember when Xander first, you know, we were first scheduling everything out. He was only going to give me two nights, and I, I demanded that we get a third. And and and, and, and Xander is so gracious to give me a third night because. Like we've talked about already, Micah delivered three total messages to the people. The first one, of course, was a warning message to tell them that their judgment was coming. Uh, the second message was a promise. And that promise was that a deliverer was coming. And that deliverer, they, they kind of hint about, about a Savior coming towards the end of the message. And the third message that Micah delivers is a challenge. And what is that challenge to the people? It is a challenge to trust and obey God's will. And isn't that a message that we need for today? Uh, this chapter is kind of a lot like the first chapter. It's an indictment by the Lord. The, uh, the first message was almost like a courtroom drama. And we see a lot of that here. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1-8, through eight, God declares His indictment on the people. And then six, the rest of chapter 6, and the first 7 verses of 7, He pronounces His sentence to the people. And then he finishes out seven with graciously promising mercy to the people. So the pattern there is guilt, punishment, and mercy. They must trust the Lord, not in spite of this, but because of it. It's a message that we need for today. We must trust the Lord. We must accept his punishment. And then we will receive his mercy. So let's just get right into it. Let's start in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your cause before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. So what was the complaint against the people? He says hear again too, by the way. We talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago. We hear a lot, but we don't really listen. There's a big difference between hearing something and listening. But he, he saw the sins of the people. They would try to hide them behind religious activity, but he, he still knows. He still sees it. Have you ever worked with a guy that only gets up and does something when the boss walks in the room? It'd be a tough guy to be around, right? And that's what they were doing. It was just They just looked good from the outside. Verse 3 says, O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from your house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miram. So the Lord begins to tell his side, like he really has to, but he does. He, he's talking about his wonderful grace towards them, how he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, guided them through the wilderness to the promised land. He put up with unbelief, disobedience, and many, many complaints. Man, those Israelites. We don't have a whole room to talk, a lot of room to talk, though. That sounds like us. Verse five says, Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. So Balaam's an interesting character in the Bible. His story is found in Numbers 22 through 24. Uh, Balaam was a prophet, but Balak, and Balak was afraid of the Israelites. He had seen what they had done to the nations around. The Moabites is, is, the, is, the, is, is who he's part of. He was, he was terrified of them. He saw the power of the Lord through the Israelites. Balaam's story is mentioned three times in the New Testament. It's talked about a lot, but it's never in a positive way. You can find Balaam mentioned in 2 Peter, Jude, and Revelation 2. It's 2 Peter 2. Revelation 2.14 credits him with the doctrine of Balaam. And what is that doctrine? It's inducing others to sin specifically to idolatry and sexual immorality. So I don't think that's a really good badge of honor for Balaam to wear. Balaam tried... He tried to curse them, but they kept coming out as blessings. And for the people that aren't familiar with the story, this is the guy that rode the donkey, and the donkey talked to him, and the angel blocked his way. And every time he would go and try to curse the Israelites, it would get flipped into a blessing. It was God at work here. And the interesting thing about that is the Israelites had no idea any of this was even going on. And it's a good lesson to all of us that God's working in the background. When you get stuck behind that guy driving slow on streets run road every morning whenever you're trying to get to work, there might be a reason for it. Maybe there's going to be an accident up the road and God's trying to prevent you from speeding to that accident. I don't know. There's a purpose for everything in your life. But the unfortunate part was after all God did for them, they still ended up hooking up with the Moabites anyway. They let their own lusts get the best of him. And because of that, 24,000 Israelites would die from a plague. The Lord would relent because of the intervention of Phinehas. And you can find the story in Numbers 25. If you want to turn there, you can. Numbers 25.10 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. As we move on to finish that verse, from, eight, from I really struggle with this word. You're all going to laugh at me. Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that is known, that that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. That finishes uh, verse 5. I know that's a lot in between. And this is talking about the crossing of the Jordan to the promised land. You can find that in Joshua 3 and 4. God opened the Red Sea for the Israelites. But in this case, he, he, he dried up the Jordan River. And the interesting thing about that is that whenever Moses went to the edge of the, of, the, of the Red Sea, he put his staff in the ground and the, and the sea split, and the Israelites would walk through, right? When they went across the Jordan, the water didn't stop running until the priest with the Ark of the Covenant began to walk into the water. So they had to show some kind of faith as they walked into that water for the water to stop. So it shows how they grew as a people. You have to remember that a whole generation had died out. These were all new people. They had been stuck in the wilderness for 38, 40 years, right? And now they were showing faith. They were going to take those steps out into the waters and not be afraid. They were following the Ark of the Covenant. They were following their leaders, the priests. They had no reason to be scared. God was with them. They They need to remember their past. And we talked about this a little bit on New Year's. We didn't record that message, so... If you didn't come, you didn't get to hear it. But we can't live in our past. We need to remember, but we can never live in it. Psalm 106 is kind of like, a, it's, like a, it's like a slimmed down version of Israel's history. Just want to go there real quick. Let's go to Psalm 106. Okay, we're going to pick up in verse 7. Uh, Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also and dried it up. So he led them through the depths as though the wilderness as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them. And redeemed them from the hand of of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was no one, not one of them left. Then they believed his words. They sang praise and soon they forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness. And tested God in the desert and gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. So God has every reason to find them guilty, to condemn them. This is the attitude they had; They always forgot. They're fickle. We're all fickle people. That's why it's so important to journal and write things down. And remember, if you don't, you gotta look at your journal as it you're writing a love letter to God. And just imagine if when you're long gone, your relatives find that and they read about you and they read about the blessings in your life and the things God did and the, and the struggles you went through. Let's pick up in verse 6. With what shall I come before? Or back in Micah, I'm sorry. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So this is the people replying to God. This is them defending themselves. This This is not a This is not a true confession, though. They're not confessing. They're not trying to, they're just trying to get rid of their sin. It's shallow. They're ignorant to their sin. And what is it to be ignorant with your sin? One of the the most famous stories of that is David and Bathsheba. David should have been out fighting a war. I know that sounds weird. They had like, it's almost like they had seasons for war, like the NFL. That's how it kind of reads. It's really strange. But he was supposed to be out fighting, and he wasn't. And he saw her on a roof, right? And he began to lust after her. And then he, he went into her and got her pregnant. And then he tried to kill, you know, he tried to cover it up and ended up having to kill the husband because he couldn't cover it up. So one sin led to another, and he became ignorant of the sin. Until a man named Nathan, the prophet, came to him and spoke to him. And he convicted him. And one interesting thing I always found about Nathan is the third son born to Bathsheba was named Nathan. I think he loved Nathan very much. I don't know if it's because he convicted him and he, he wounded his heart and turned him and, 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 and opened his eyes to the sin in his life. But he named his third son, the Bathsheba, Nathan. That's unbelievable if you really look into it. And I, I went through and confirmed this. I'm not making this up. True saving faith comes from a heart that's been broken in repentance. And by by confronting him, Nathan broke his heart. He realized he was going down a bad path and he needed to repent for his sins. He ended up losing a child over it. In verse 8, the prophet spoke to the people and he told them exactly what God wanted each one of them to do. He emphasized moral and ethic conduct, not religious ceremonies coming in here and singing songs and all that's great, but we can't just go through the motions. If we were on a plane, I'd tell you this is time to buckle your seatbelts. So verse 8 reads like this. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? And I don't even want to finish it. Let's talk about to do justly. So to do justly that's kind of always come easy for me. And I'm not saying I'm perfect because I'm nowhere near perfect. But I'm a legalist at heart without Jesus. I love rules. The problem is I want everybody else to follow the rules and we all know that's not the way the world works. So, you know, I went through most of my life being like that and without being a Christian. And I'm not saying I was walking justly with God because I wasn't but I just believed in a certain set of principles and I followed them. That's just the way I am. I have rules. I have regulations. I have things I do. We are justified by our faith, but we must not let that justice become too much and overwhelm us and take over our lives. I want to turn to Luke 15 real quick. Sorry for all the flipping. Turn to Luke 15. and We're going to look at the prodigal son. So when people read this story, they usually focus on the younger son, but I want to focus on the older son. So the prodigal son is about, he takes his inheritance early, goes out, blows it all, um, realizes the mistake he made and said, what am I doing? I could be better, I'd be better off with my father than out here working with the pigs. So he goes back home. And his dad sees him from far away and they run and they meet in the field and it's a beautiful hallmark moment. But I want to look at verse 25 here because if you live a just life and that's all you live, this is who you become even outside of, the, even outside of becoming a Christian. Verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field and he came and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, "'Your brother has come, and because he received him safe and sound, your father has killed a fattened calf.' But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, "'Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends.'" But as soon as the son of yours comes home, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you always you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that you should make merry and be glad. For your brother it was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So Jesus really was aiming at towards the Pharisees here, because you know, they were, they were so legalistic, right? That was their job, really. But we got to be careful we don't become this brother. When a new believer does something, even if it's the smallest little thing, we should be giving them a standing ovation, cheering them along. Who cares who cuts the lemons, Tim? Right? I struggled with this a lot when I first became a Christian, too. People were taking my jobs. I did so much here we got to be really careful that justice doesn't reign over us, and that's all we do is justice, 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 justice. It's important to live a just life. It is. We have to find a balance, and that balance is to love mercy. The question I have for you is how can you love mercy unless you've experienced it yourself? And I want to tell you a story about the first time I experienced mercy, and I'm going to try to hold it together. I promise. You know, I told you guys two weeks ago, my hair is not a fashion statement. I was born with this. I'm the fourth generation to have it. My daughter is the fifth. Um, And I got picked on a lot and stared at. I can feel it. I can feel it everywhere I go. And if you notice, I wear hats a lot because I just don't want to be stared at. I found no mercy as a child. People just didn't, some people were honestly just curious, though. I've learned that over the years. It's never like always a negative thing. But as I grew up, I, you know, I always remember my dad telling me to grab a hat before we left the house, because it's hard being a parent with a kid that has it too, because I feel people staring at my child. You know, so as I'm going through life, I just want to be normal. I don't want to have to put suntan lotion on every 30 minutes because I have a skin condition, so I, I can get skin cancer really easily. That's part of the reason for the hat, because i got to protect the top of my head because I have no pigment. So you know, I you know, and then I'm growing up, and I get into middle school, and it's it's hell on earth. I found no mercy from from my classmates. It wasn't getting any better. But then I grew, and people started to leave me alone. I mean, for obvious reasons. But it still wasn't a pleasant experience. And by the time I got into high school, I was broken. I was damaged. And I and I found no mercy in high school. I was forced to go to my prom by my mother because I didn't want to be around my classmates. These are the kids that picked on me my entire life and, and I didn't want to be around them, even if they stopped because I got to be 6'3", 280 pounds. So, you know, shortly after that, I, out of high school, I went in to become a plumber's apprentice. And at this point, like I said, I was already a broken guy and I was probably a bit oversensitive. Um, If you catch me on a bad day, you you could probably really hurt my feelings. I became a plumber's apprentice, and to be honest, the first few months, it it was awful. I found no mercy. Them guys, they find a weakness, they're going to keep digging at you and digging at you and digging at you. And I was probably very oversensitive, but there were a lot of days I would leave and I would cry on the way home. I just didn't understand why they were so mean. I found no mercy at work. And then shortly after I became an apprentice plumber, I met my wife. Um, we fell in love fast. Every, I, had a, I had a great new job. I met this beautiful young lady. My life was great. There was only one thing that stunk, and that was my mother-in-law, future mother-in-law. Man, was she a pain. She really made my relationship hard. We fought constantly. We never got along. We went through our whole... You know, me and Cindy were together. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Together, together, together. We would we would get along with her for a little bit. We would go to a family function, and it would end like every standard monopoly game. Tables would be flipped over. People were saying, "Why do we do this?" We it would never last. We would fight. It put a lot of strain on my relationship. And I'm still going through this apprenticeship and and hating it every minute of it. It was a job. It paid the bills, I dealt with it. But it began to make me rigid, it began to make me mean. I didn't like who I was becoming, but I couldn't stop. I felt like if I didn't put up this persona as a tough guy, I would never make it. It was such a dog-eat-dog world. My mother-in-law didn't even come to my wedding. Most of my wife's family didn't come to my wedding. My, me and my wife's wedding, listen to me, my wedding. Um, as I got more and more rigid in the strain of the family fighting constantly, war on my marriage. And after we had Lenina, we had a lot of great years, but about six years after Nina was born, we separated. And I, hurt, I was hurt bad. I turned everywhere I shouldn't have. Alcohol, whatever I could to numb my pain. I had known I had screwed up. I was finding no mercy anywhere I turned. And then a woman named Kathy began to call me. She knew I was hurting. I'd lost 40 pounds at the beginning of my separation. It wasn't that I didn't want to eat, I just never remembered to. And Kathy would talk to me on the phone for hours. She was worried about my daughter when I had her because I wasn't all There. And Kathy took me to church. She took me to a Saturday night service because I couldn't go on Sundays because I worked. And that night when we left that service, she went home and said, look up the sinner's prayer. And I did. I wrote it down in a notebook. I went to her house and we did the prayer together. You're probably thinking, wow, neat story, Brad. But what most of you don't realize is that Kathy is my mother-in-law. See, that night, mercy had a name. Its name was Jesus. For the first time in my life, I felt mercy. A mercy I never felt before for somebody that didn't have to show me mercy. And it changed my life forever. And now I had the other part. I walked justly. I had the Lord now. And I found mercy. And once you taste mercy, you want to share it with everybody. Ask my wife, we can't go anywhere without me chasing people away by bringing up the Lord, because a lot of them don't want to hear it. Ephesians 2, 4-9 tells us, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when he was dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for the grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourselves, but the gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast. See that night, Kathy chose mercy over hate. She chose mercy over all the mean things I ever said. She chose mercy over all the holidays I ruined. And I ruined holidays, trust me. She chose mercy over everything. She had no reason to want to help me. So let's move no. into the last part of that first, which is, and to walk humbly with your God. So how do you walk humbly with your God? Hum- Humility is not something we can just artificially create or you know it's something that just happens and I and, and, and it's definitely through living a justful merciful life it's by doing both it's by doing the right thing by living justly through the Lord and showing people you know Paul says live live as I imitate me as I imitate Christ people are watching you they know you're a Christian you must walk justly. You're never going to be perfect. I'm not saying that. But with that just walk comes a mercy walk too. When people screw up, we have to long suffer with them. We have to continue to be there for them. We need to continue to lift them up, edify them. But how do we humble ourselves to God? We must bow to him, confess our sins. Claim His promise of forgiveness. We just have to claim it. That's all. Luke fourteen eleven says, "For whoever exalts him will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." James four ten says, "Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up." And as we as we finish out verse eight, we can we can experience all three of these: to walk justly, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with God in Luke 18. Turn to Luke 18 with me, please. So we're going to start in verse 9. And this illustrates all three of these components of this verse. It picks up at verse 9 here. Uh, Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The publican was justified by faith who is is the tax collector, not by doing good works that the Pharisee boasted about. He depended on God's mercy to save him and doing so he humbled himself. The Pharisee informed God of how good he was. And that he deserved eternal life. When in reality, he, we all deserve eternal damnation. We can do nothing that God requires us until we recognize that we are broken. And that's where I was in my life. I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. Titus 3.5 tells us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. God can only save the lost. He can only forgive the guilty. We must see ourselves as God sees us. Then by faith, we can become what he wants us to be. I would have never pictured myself being up here 15 years ago. And I'm so thankful for the amazing work that God has done in my entire family. And I'm so thankful for all of you. But verse 9 says this. We're back in Micah. The Lord's voice cries to the city, wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod who has appointed it. So God says here again. He's saying, listen, listen to me. For the second time in the message, he says this. They had ears, but the, but God's word couldn't penetrate their heart. You need to be prepared for God's heart, to, the word to wound you. It's going to. God speaks about sin and its consequences here. He called them to fear Him and heed what He had to say. Without fear, they can neither they could have neither knowledge or wisdom. Proverbs one seven tells us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness? Pick back up in Micah, verse ten. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? In the short measure that is an abomination, shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Here, Micah calls out the merchants. in Verses ten through twelve, they were exploiting the poor. We kind of talked about this in the first teaching. He robbed them of them from of justice and, and the necessities of like life, like paying six dollars a gallon for gas. It'd be like them charge. It'd be like this would be like the water company charging a million dollars a gallon. Where else are you going to go to get water? You're not calling another water company to come and hook up a water line in your house. You have one option. But they were taking advantage of the people. They couldn't go to the courts because it would just be overlooked. This is the dangers of capitalism. When you have rotten hearts, capitalism can be very dangerous. Verse 12 says, For the rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies. And their, heart, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The rich were violent. We kind of talked about these, these guys in, in the first two chapters, the robber barons, so to speak. They were forcibly evicting people. They were taking their land because they wanted to profit off the land. And like I said before, the court system couldn't help them. It was corrupt just like everything else. Verse 13 says, Therefore I will make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but, but shall, not some, not, shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tr- tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. And make sweet wine, but not drink wine. God endured them to uh, ordained them to reap what they sow. They would find no satisfaction anywhere they turn. They couldn't fill their to- they couldn't fill their stomachs enough. They would still be hungry. They would tread the awls but not be anointed with the oil. And that kind of makes me think they would not get the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, that's what it kind of sounds like in a way. They would not get to drink their sweet wine. They would find no satisfaction outside of the Lord. Verse sixteen: For the statues of them. um, Omar, and are kept all the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in the councils that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. He speaks of the evil kings, And, uh, and Omar was considered a bad king, but Ahab in the Haley's Bible commentary was called the worst king. The word reproach means disgrace. He says, therefore, you shall bear the disgrace of my people. They didn't see the warnings of the north falling. I don't know how they couldn't have, but they didn't. But we remember the attitude they had that we have the temple. Why would anything bad ever happen to us? We have the temple. Nothing's going to happen. We're children of Abraham. Nothing possible can bad happen to us. Just like here in America, we have the best military in the world. Nothing's going to happen to us. We're the greatest country that's ever been around. Nothing's ever going to happen to us. Let's move into chapter 7. We're still in the part where he's giving his indictment or giving his punishment. uh, Chapter 7 starts with, Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who, who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of my first ripe fruit, which my soul desires. This is the prophet speaking. And he's speaking of his sorrow for the people. Prophets uh, declared with their lips, but they also felt the burden of the people, much like our pastors do today. Right? They feel the burden of the people, of of their congregation. Jeremiah wept for his people. He wept for the nation of Israel. In this... uh, I'm sorry, verse two. The faithful man has perished from the earth and there was no one upright among them. They all lie and wait for blood. Every man hurts his brother within that. It sounds like there was no godly people left. There was a breakdown of morality, a breakdown of leadership, and a breakdown of the family. Many of the things we suffer now. He he compared the evil officials to hunters they perverted the law and they hurt the people they were, they were sworn to protect. Verse 3 says that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and a great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. The best of them is a briar, the most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. So he speaks of watchmen who are the prophets. Verse 5, do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. For a son dishonors father, daughter rises against the mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Unfaithfulness had spread through the whole society from the leaders to the common people, and, and no one could be trusted. You couldn't even trust your own household. Jesus quotes Micah 7.6 in Matthew 10.36. He says, in a man's enemies will be those of his own household. It would have been wise for them to heed the words of Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. But the people became blinded by the darkness. They became blinded by the darkness that the sin had cast in their lives. It's kind of what we were talking about before David. He became blind to it. He Couldn't even see what he was doing anymore. One sin leads to another. You cover up this one with that one. Verse 7 says, therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah looked away from the sins of the people and he looked to God. So when you find yourself on Facebook getting frustrated at what everybody's saying on there and all the people that are doing terrible things, get off of Facebook and get your Bible open. It's so easy to get sucked into this culture war we're fighting right now. But we don't have to fight. We can fight in our prayer rooms. We can fight on our knees praying to the Lord. Like he says, I will wait for God, the God of my salvation. God, my God will hear me. He will hear you. Michael looked like um, he meditated on the faithfulness of God. And that's what we need to do. And as we move into the last section here, there's three voices in this last section. One is the nation. The second is the prophet. And the third is the Lord. Verse 8 says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. I will fall, I will rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. How beautiful is that? When you sit in the darkest part of your life, the Lord will be your light. When you feel like you have no mercy, the last person you could ever believe will come and bring the light you need into your life. To not only save your soul, but to save your marriage, to save your family. Verse 9 says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me, I will bring. he, he will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Then she who is, is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her, who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. Micah is speaking uh, on behalf of the remnant. We've talked about the remnant several times and there will always be a remnant of God's people. The enemy was gloating over Israel. They thought they had them right where they wanted them. But they trusted God in the darkness and they trusted that they would see the light. In this dark world that we live in now, we have to hold that in here. Like we talked about Balaam and Balak, there's things happening behind the scenes. We have no idea what's going on and God is working. We just have to be patient and wait and trust and see what the Lord's doing and wait to see His plan unfold. Verse 11 says, In the day that the walls are built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain. Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. The Jewish nation will face great tribulation from all nations. But ultimately, they will triumph. We talked about that a little bit a couple weeks ago. Uh, Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell in solidarity in the woodland, in the midst of carmel let them feed in bashan and gilead as in days of old so this is the voice of the prophet jerusalem will be destroyed the babylonians will come through and destroy it but it will be rebuilt 714 is a prayer shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your heritage what is heritage heritage is like the it's like an uh It's what somebody leaves behind. Inheritance. It's it's the inheritance, right? It's what's left behind for your children. That's what a heritage is. Who dwell in solidarity in the woodland in the midst of Carmel and let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as the days of old. He asked God to care for his people. Micah did. Psalm 23 is kind of reflective of this. So you you can turn there or not. I'm just going to read Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul and leads me into passive righteousness for my name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all of my days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He longed for the good old days when they were a prosperous nation. The, The land was plentiful, but they forgot who they were. They forgot God. They forgot all he had done. Verse 15 says, As the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. And this voice is the Lord speaking. He will show the wonders to the Gentiles like, like an exodus from Egypt. Verse 16, The nation shall see and be ashamed of all the might. They shall put their hand over their mouth and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from the holes like snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord your God and shall fear because of you. And this is the voice of the prophet speaking. The wonders at the end of times, like I said, will shock the Gentiles. They will see the power of God and everything that's happening around them. In Philippians two nine tells us, therefore God also has highly exalted him who has given him the name in which is above every name. That that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will submit. Verse 18, it says, Who is like God, pardoning in- iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. And there it is again. Guilt, punishment, mercy. And Micah says, who is, God, who is a God like you? Which is, which is what his name means. And what Micah shows, there is confidence in God's character. There is nobody like Jehovah. Verse 19 says, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will subdue all of the iniquities like the Egyptian army after the walls of the Red Sea came crashing down. He's going to separate the sea for you. All you have to do is walk through and he will wash it all away. Verse 20 says, you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. God was faithful to his promise he made to Abraham. No matter how dark the day is, the light of God's promises will shine through. And we can see that in the end of the chapter here. We must trust him. Not everything's going to make sense. Things aren't going to go our way. But no, not all, we see things as bad, but things, they're just things that happen. I've had some bad things happen. And there I go, I call them bad. But they would have never molded me into the man I am today if they wouldn't have happened. What is our future? You can find that in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, 1-5. This is our promise. This is our light. This is what we have to look forward to. Verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. As I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he sat down on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That's your promise. I just want to leave you with one more thing. I, I got this out of a. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, his commentary. And I just, I think it's very moving. It's a hymnal that Martin Luther wrote. And James Montgomery Boyce is from Pittsburgh, so listen. I mean, it's a big deal. When I found that out, I was so excited, I texted him like, then like, five minutes later. So Martin Luther, this is an excerpt from a hymn. I don't think there was a name for it, but it reflects Israel. Though great our sins and sore our wounds and deep and dark our fall, His helping mercy hath no bounds. His love surpasses all. Our thirsty living shepherd, he who shall at last set Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. And that promise is for you, too. You can find the mercy you desire in Jesus if you lack mercy in your life. I know I'm not alone in that. I know a lot of you probably feel you've never, some of you've never, probably maybe you never felt mercy. But you can find it in Jesus Christ. And if I could name this sermon, it would be Mercy Has a Name, and that mercy, that name is Jesus Christ. So please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful for, um, for, Mike, for the book of Micah, Lord, and the three messages he delivered. What an awesome way to show the mercy of God and how he works in our lives and how he, he takes, he, he just he continues to show mercy, mercy, mercy. Lord, as we go out into the world, may, may we be lights in this world, a world that desperately needs it. Lord, we're so thankful for the time you give us to spend together and to study your word. Bless everybody as they head home. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.